Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dragzine Podcast. This week, I got on the other side of me, Mr. Terry McMillan. Terry, what's going on? Not too much, man. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the season, at least for me, is starting to ramp up more and more as much as we can. And, you know, things are getting back normal-ish with COVID. So I'm uh, I'm getting ready to uh, get out and cover more races and hopefully get one of both of my uh, piles back on the track and racing soon. There you go. I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's been, definitely been a long year, you know, with this COVID. It's just really messed a lot of things up and, uh, you know, and it's going to be great just to see the country get back to normal where we can all go out and, and you know, have a dinner or go to a races and enjoy yourselves and, and uh, you know, looking forward to that day uh, happening. So it's uh, hopefully around the corner, you know, quicker than we hope. COVID has completely messed with my sense of time. It seems like it's been like five years, 2020 was like five years long. It felt like, <laughs> Oh, I know. I think, I think for everybody, you know, it's, um, you know, it's just corporate America is upside down because of it. You know, uh, fans and, and, and racers, we're all upside down and, and basically everything in the industry is in any industry is upside down because it's, everything was just taken away. Like all of a sudden you were, you had everything that you want. You could do anything you want at any given time. And all of a sudden the carpet's pulled out from underneath you. And now you got to stay home. You got to stay quarantined, you know, and it's just, um, people are just wanting to get back out and doing something. So it's, it's, um, it's pretty, pretty uh, exciting to know that some daylight is around the corner. It's interesting. I've been to two events in 2021 so far, working on the flow sports side of things, doing on air. U.S. Street Nationals and then the World Door Slammer Nationals, both in Florida. You would have thought it was a normal year. The amount of fans at the track was, it, it didn't like, it wasn't like when I was at Vegas for the Super Streetcar Nationals where it was thin or they couldn't have anybody. People were there living life and taking precautions, but it was like, it, it gave me a little bit of hope. They <laughs> said that, all right, things are going to get back to normal finally. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, just an NHRA, you know, case, I think they did a great job last year of getting races in, you know, and and uh, trying to do the best they can manage the amount of people that were coming to the races and, and everybody took the precautions that they needed to do. And I think NHRA did a great job, which has allowed them to race as much as they did last year in comparison to what other uh, other industries might have done. But, um, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, we all want to be safe and, and certainly, you know, uh, nobody wants to deal with this COVID thing. So, the coolest thing in the world is going to be getting this thing behind us and moving forward. You know, I got, I got my COVID shot. So, you know, now I don't know that I'm Superman yet, but I'm, I'm going to feel immune to that and hopefully, uh, you know, go on and just start living a normal life. I love it without a, a face mask on. And, and uh, heck, I don't recognize half the people I see anymore with the mask on. So it's like, it's been really, um, been really crazy, but I'm looking forward to life getting back to normal as we know it. Now, you said you don't know if you'll be Superman. However, driving a top fuel dragster, I think, at least puts you in the same echelon as being Superman because it's indescribably crazy. What made you want to say, you know what? Screw normal life. I want to be a professional race car driver. Like, how did that whole journey for you begin? Well, I knew at a very young age that, you know, um, I grew up in the muscle car era. So I, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. So everybody had race cars and street rods. And, and it was just, you know, it was just a overwhelming experience with cars. And so at a young age, I started working on these cars with some of these guys. And on the weekends, um, I'd work in a garage with my dad. We'd make extra money. I had eight brothers and sisters. So um, he wanted to make sure that everybody was taken care of. So 
I learned how to paint cars and how to build motors and all that stuff with him on the weekends. Uh, and then, um, you know, it just kind of parlayed into this is what I want to do. And a real quick story. I had a teacher and, uh, you know, my my school book back then was drag racing magazines, super Chevy, you know, car craft, all the magazines. And, and I know most people don't even know what that is anymore today because of the Internet. But but fortunately, that was my school book. And, um, you know, I, I really I knew that I wanted to race. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew that I was I was able to build anything with my hands and make it work. So um, so I struggled in school for, for quite a long time. And then I had this teacher and she said, look, she was my English teacher. She says, I know this isn't your area. This isn't your passion to be in this school. But she says, we got to do something to get you through school and help teach you, you know, the things that you need to know for the future. She said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you write stories on these racing magazines. And then you're going to give me the racing magazine. I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to turn around and grade you on it. Well, I have to tell you, from that day on, it turned my life around because it was like, you know, I found somebody that had an interest in what I'd liked. And, and it wasn't just about history or anything like that. I, I, I was I lived in real time and I wanted to work in real time. And, uh, and she allowed me that opportunity to get graded on that. And from that day on, it turned my life around. And, and uh, you know, I've never looked back. But because of her, um, it made made the difference. And, you know, went on, you know, graduate and get some college and all that other stuff. So it's, um, you know, I'm really fortunate. And, and uh, but. Again, I grew up in the muscle car era, man. Every every weekend on the radio, every day on the radio, you hear Sunday, Sunday, Sunday at US 30 drag strip and, you know, and in Byron and Illinois and, and all these tracks are around us. And so it was like, it just seemed to be a natural, you know, you didn't hear, you didn't hear anything about the NASCAR and anything like that. It was all drag racing. And so uh, it seemed like two things happened there. They had cool cars and they always had the hot girls and I wanted both. So here I am. You know, it's interesting. I write a lot of stories about a lot of different people. And like, that is literally the main thread or threads. Family has cars, interest in building things, interesting in mechanical, desire to race. All four of those things lead us all to this life. And it's so hard. And that, that kudos to that teacher for seeing that. It's very hard because I had the same deal passion psychotic addiction to racing if you want to call it that but <laughs> it it draws you in and that's all you freaking think about yeah absolutely 100 i mean I, I i could tell you anything you want to know in every one of those magazines because i read them front to back until the cover was wore out because it took 30 days before the next issue came out so it was uh it was a really good read and it certainly you know helped me uh, in the future doing some of the things that we do today, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just the perfect time. You know, I, I was, I grew up in Illinois, Mr. Norms, you know, was right down the road. You had Nikki Chevrolet, you had everybody around you that uh, just, you know, said, Hey, you need to go race cars or you need to play with cars. And so that's what we did. And to this day, I still play with cars. Yeah. It's the only difference I think between other men and people like us is just, we never grew up playing with our toys just got bigger and you could drive them. <laughs> A little more expensive, but they're worth it. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, you know, anytime I spend a boatload of cash on car parts or anything else, I realize I could be wasting my time doing something a whole lot different. At least there's something like you you get something out of it. You know, the friendships, the building of it. And like the muscle car era to me, 
you know, my, my dad grew up in that area. You know, he talks about that literally in front of the gas station he worked out of his brothers. It was like American graffiti every weekend night. Every day. To me, that would have like, I didn't get to experience that, but I love, like, I can almost dream it and feel what you got to go through. And that, I mean, that, that had to be amazing. Well, it is. I mean, it's something, you know, it's, it's definitely back in time, but it's definitely, uh, it's just the way it really was, you know, and, and everybody, you know, everybody had some kind of a cool car and, and, uh, you know, and it was just then, you know, trying to figure out how to make it go faster. Some of them were, you know, jacked up high in the air on all four corners. And then some of them were up in the back end, some were up in the gas version, you know, but it was just that transition timing and, in motorsports and in racing industry that um, that we we're all going through and so trying to figure out where we were going to get the best weight transfer and how we were going to make everything work was uh, really really intriguing and and uh, you know it just uh, but I worked at a gas station I worked at a gas station started 13 years old and uh, you know it was just a place to be everybody would come in we'd work on the cars on the lift after hours you know get them all ready to go and then you know go out and play later that night somewhere so <clears throat> you know it was just um it was just a time that uh, I don't think we'll ever see that again, but certainly um, one that I, I'm glad I didn't miss. I think we're in a different version of that time now with what's available from the manufacturers, because nowadays, if you've got enough cash or a high enough line of credit, you can walk into a dealership and buy a nine second car with a warranty and just go drive it. Right. Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, it was like, you think about it, you know, back in, 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 in 66, 67, you, you know, you could buy a, a you know, a Nova, a super sport, four speed, you know, big motor in it and all that stuff. And you paid like 3,500 bucks for it. You know, I mean, it was like nothing. Uh, back then, $3,500 is, you know, probably like 60 grand today, but, but you didn't have those options like you just alluded to, you know, you had to, you know, you took what the dealership gave you, there was no warranty on it. You know, you tore the transmission up, in the first week, it was your baby. You owned it. And, uh, you know, today, I mean, you can get a, a Demon or a Hellcat or, you know, Camaro and, and, and go out there and run these things. And you heard it and you take it back to the dealership and it's under warranty and they fix it for you. So it's not a bad program, but boy, you certainly pay for that. Yeah, you, you pay for the convenience of being able to break something and have someone else mess with it. <laughs> it, it and then, God forbid, if you, you, you avoid the warranty and then you're in a whole different level of hurt. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the same time, it just it fascinates me always kind of looking back and seeing what, you know, I had Herb McAllister on the show and he talked about, you know, old school pro stock racing and like this, there was no blueprint. There was no roadmap like there is today where you can go on the internet and type in how to make an LS1 round nines and you just get pages of results. Right. Back in the day, you guys just had to literally trial and error and figure it out. Well, you know, I remember back, you know, pouring cylinder heads, you know, the whole idea back then was to make them smooth, but, you know, and we would make them so smooth, they were like mirrors, but really that was a bad thing. We didn't know that back then because, you know, but today, you know, that was a bad thing. We shouldn't have been doing that, but it was like the thing to do. You'd spend, you know, 40, 60 hours polishing a set of heads that you can shave in, you know, and then turn around. And, and now you learn that, well, that didn't really work out real well for you, that you need to be a little more coarse in there. And, and, and to make, you know, fuel animized. So it's, it's, um, it's the thing that we, like you said, we didn't have a blueprint. Everything you did was trial and error. And, uh, you know, if you, if you make the car pick up in any way that you could, that's what you did. And, you know, it wasn't like there was, um, 
a variety of camshafts at the time and computers to make that camshaft up for you and tell you what it's going to be. You just, you know, constantly try things to try to pick up, you know, an extra few horsepower. I always try with my guests to do a little bit of research so I don't sound like a complete idiot when I'm talking to them. Partial idiot's acceptable. Complete idiot doesn't work. <laughs> now, that, that's, tri that's trial and error. Learn that one the hard way. Now, you've raced in both the major sanctioned organizations in top fuel and you've won them both a lot of racers aren't gonna you know they don't have that opportunity these days unfortunately because the ihra is gone well go, gone from you know doing fuel Actions. racing what was the difference between because i remember growing up watching tv you'd see guys bounce back and forth what was the big difference bouncing back and forth from your perspective when you, you got to live that and bounce between the organizations? Well, you know, I think IHRA was, for me, it was a really great place to race the car and, and, and it taught us a lot. We learned a lot about the car, kind of learned what we needed to have. And we didn't have to do that with a 24 race schedule. You know, it was more so a 12 race schedule. So uh, achieving the funding that you needed to have and, and to go out there and do things and learn, um, we were able to do. We, we made the transition over to NHRA, but we weren't sure that we could, we could do that. And, and that is, you know, there was a handful of cars in IHRA and sometimes they would run NHRA, but, um, you know, pretty much that group was, you know, we ran together and then, you know, we keep trying to see if we can qualify. And when you look at the NHRA side of things, you're looking at teams like Schumacher and Coletta who have a warehouse full of parts and people. And, and it's like, how can you even compete? I mean, you walk in down Schumacher's shop and you're defeated already because, I mean, this guy's got every piece of equipment, every everything that you can imagine. John Force is no different, you know. So um, it's quite intimidating when you when you go in and, and you see what they all have. So you you look at the big picture and say, well, first off, I got to come up with the money to run 24 races. But more so, I also have to figure out how to compete against these guys. And and when you don't have the, the budget, you know, to have two or three crew chiefs and and, you know, 10 or 12 people working on the car, um, you learn that you have to do a lot of it yourself and, and do it the hard way. And, and so that's kind of what we did. We transitioned up through there. Once we realized that we could least qualify for the race, that was the first thing in NHRA. Once we did that, then we kept trying to perfect it and make it a little bit better. We had a couple of times that were really great. We had some times that were really tough. But um, towards the end here, you know, we brought Rob Wenlin in and, and uh, formed a team. And um, at that point in time, I felt that, you know, we were unstoppable. We had a, um, we'd build our own chassis in house, had a great car. Rob did a phenomenal job of tuning the car. The team did a great job keeping it maintained, you know, so it was just a matter of now going out there and, and wreaking the benefits from that. And, and unfortunately the season got cut short, you know, last year, but um, it, it certainly was uh, no small uh, hurdle. I mean, it was a large deal to compete in NHRA coming from the IHRA side but more so just because of the competition, the level of talent that was in the uh, NHRA side, because it wasn't just one crew chief, like you had on each team in the NHRA, IHRA. Now you had multiple crew chiefs and you have multiple combinations and parts and, and guys making stuff that, you know, no, wasn't even on the market yet, you know, and, and yet the car's running better because they have that. And when you can, when you can do that type of stuff and make your stuff in house, you have control of a lot of things. And, and uh, that is the one thing that, that, you know, Rob and I had learned and discussed is that, you know, we built our in-house chassis. We did one, the front half of one uh, the year before 19. And then in 20, um, we built a brand new car in our shop and 
we really didn't change a lot of stuff, but we changed the chassis a little bit. And that chassis is what woke our car up. It wasn't that we were, it was the same engine combination. Everything was the same. It just, there were some things that we knew that we needed to change. And when you think about it, um, you know, they're not going to sell you the top of the line, best stuff that they're running today. They're going to sell you the stuff maybe they ran last year. And that's just business because obviously they want to win. They want that edge. And, and so we learned from that, that time on that, you know, we need to start doing things more so in the house and trying to make our program better because it's the only way it's going to get better. We can't just continue to copy what other people are doing and then using that to make it work. So, you know, we started there and then we started with some clutch fingers and things like that. And, and before you knew it, we ended up with a combination that was pretty deadly. Um, you know, we're top five going into um, uh, St. Louis last year. And then we, uh, we couldn't compete in any more races, but um, you know, we had a car that could have definitely been a number three car, uh, you know, had things stayed on course and we could, you know, continue to race because the car was just that good. And our combination, our package, if you will, was just that good. So um, why it, it's, it's still the past, it's still real. And that was a, a great time. And we're hoping that we somehow, some way can uh, find the funding we need to go out there and reunite and do this program again, because I think we have a solid program that's going to make us run well with everybody. But like I said, it's, um, it wasn't easy. It was just a, a series of moves and and trying new things and, and figuring out what's going to work because we don't have a clutch dyno. We don't have a blower dyno. We don't have any of that stuff. Our, our dyno was the racetrack. We'd show up, we'd unload the car, we'd make a pass and we'd learn from it. And then, you know, uh, sometimes we didn't get into Q4, but here at the end, you know, we started going down the track right off the bat in Q1. So now we had opportunities to try different things because we knew we weren't going to get bumped out of the show. And so that just opened up the doors for other opportunities and other things to try. And then, you know, you give that to Rob Welland, he's going to, he's going to make something happen. And he did. I find it interesting that I guess I never really uh, thought of it this way with the chassis. Is, is there like, do the chassis really make that much of a difference in how you tweak them? Because I always would think, you know, I, I know chassis make up a certain point of it, but I didn't realize, I guess, when you're making that much horsepower, that the, the tiny little custom tweaks made that much of a difference. Well, I can tell you, you know, you, you can definitely tell the difference when you come out with a car that's got brand new tubing on it versus the car that you race, you know, half a year. Like, you know, typically every half year you put a new front end on a car. And that was because the tubing was fatiguing. You know, you think about it, the tube is bowing and then yeah. it's coming the other way. So it's no different than an airplane wing. It's just moving a lot under uh under an unusual amount of load and so what um what happens is you put a new front end on that car the second half and all of a sudden the car picks up again and starts running really well so what we learned was that by doing the modifications that you know that was made to the front half and adding some of those modifications to the back half it just it just changed the game it just definitely changed the game of the way it is and we didn't change combinations on the motor or blower or anything like that same stuff just a different combination on the chassis. And so, um, you know, a chassis on these things, they got to be free, uh, non-binding, if you will. Um, but, you know, we ran, in 19, we ran the same front half on the car the whole entire year. Most people can't do that. They were changing, you know, even our cars before that, we were changing our car. We'd run it all the way to Indy, and before Indy, we put a front half on it, you know, and, and finished the year out that way. And and um, we ran our, our, our design that Rob had created. We had ran that and um, we finished the 2020 or 2019 season with that. 
and we had very little um, fraction in, in the chassis at all. So, um, you know, we, we, we had indicators on there and, and things like that that we could check. We measured it every day, you know, at the racetrack at the end of the weekend. Um, we kept track of all that stuff, and that led us to building the better chassis. I guess that makes sense with the front half. And now that you think about it with how much the way that those cars kind of bend and twist and what they do, that it's like putting fresh, you know, other like engine parts in or something like that engine where it brings back it to within spec. So that, that definitely makes sense. And that that's interesting. I never thought about how much, how like little slight tweaks could help, you know, it's the little tweaks that help the other things down the line, what you can do with the clutch and the tune up and traction and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, you pick up a couple on, you pick up a couple numbers on the starting line. Well, that's going to translate to big numbers at the end, you know? And and so um, that's what it all boiled down to. Our car would always run from the three thirty out. It would run amazing, but we can never get the car to 60 foot. So um, when, when we went to work to building this new chassis and this new design, um, it certainly turned the combination around. Our 60 foots came in play, and then all of a sudden this car starts running numbers like it never had before. We got a number one qualifier, something we've never had. It was always a dream to get to that point, but we had it. You know, we um, we just had a combination, and, and you know, you got to look at it. These cars not only do they bow up and down, but they're like a snake. Also, they're going. There's nothing going straight about it. You think there's a lot of long tubing out there? You may notice some cross bracing in there and all that. That thing is going side to side and up and down at the same time. So there's a lot of energy that's being wasted when it's snaking and, and bobbing and weaving like that. So if you can tighten that energy up and, and use that energy in that chassis, then the car's going to run faster. Makes sense. Now, you spent some time racing alcohol cars, correct? I did. I, I always find that interesting because to me, top alcohol funny car is one of my favorite classes because you can hear them anywhere on the property, you know, when they're on the track and they're a handful, they're like a pro mod with a funny car body because they want to do everything, but go straight. You know, how does it compare driving one of those to a nitro car? Well, I mean, there's, there's a big difference. The funny car for sure. I mean, you know, you're, you, you're in control of the clutch and everything, you know, you, you bring it up to 6,000 RPMs or whatever you're going to leave the line at. And you have to physically let the clutch out to get the car to go down the track and, and then you have to hit the shift points, you know, and, and all that. In a fuel car, not so much. You you take your foot off the clutch, you stage it with your foot on a brace inside, and you bump it into light, and you just mash the throttle from an idle. And then the computer takes over, and 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 the cannon allows you know fingers to come in at a certain time. So from that point of it, it's different. Um, what's really the big difference was the amount of speed and how fast things happen. You know, I mean, you look at a, a top fuel car, you're you know. You're 106 miles an hour, 104 miles an hour, 60 feet, you know, and, and a funny car, not so much. Um, but the funny car was a, a short wheelbase, handful of drive. And uh, and that was always made intriguing and exciting for me. And I would have raced the top fuel funny car. It just cost another $500,000 that we just didn't have to do that. So um, it became very economical if we wanted to stay in the sport um, to build a top fuel dragster and go out there and run that. And so that's what we ended up doing. But uh yeah, I mean, Rob just picked up a couple of funny car bodies and, uh, you know, we're like making a joke the other day. It's like, man, we ought to build a funny car, you know, that, that even if it's a nostalgic car, let's just, you know, go do something. But, uh, you know, ultimately, um, I mean, I, I really enjoy the funny car. Like you said, the alcohol cars are unique. Um, you know, they, they you wind them up. You just do a lot with them to get power out of them. And, uh, you know, but, um, you know, you can't you can't beat the king of speed. 
and and that's the dragster. I mean, it's just um, uh, two different driving styles. You know, the first time first time I was in a in a dragster and the car made a move. You know, you're sitting behind the rear wheel in the rear wheels in the funny car. You're right there, so you feel this thing happening really quick. And a dragster, it accelerates so much faster, and then you feel the car make a move, and it's like man, you want to turn the steering wheel like you're trying to chop wood because that's what you do in a funny car. Well, that's the worst thing in the world to do on a Draxler because it wants to lay on its side, you know? Never did that, but I mean, I got it close to where I was rocking it pretty good when I realized at that point in time, man, I got to slow everything down. We actually went back and changed the gearbox on the Draxler as slow as we could possibly get it because it was just um, just a normal reaction of coming all the funny car for all those years that, you know, you just wanted to snap the steering wheel and, and in a Draxler, that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah, it's it with, with the top fuel carts. It's a uh, it's baby movements, baby finesse. baby movements. You got to finesse <laughs> it. You got to you know talk gently to it. You can't yell at it. A funny car, you're beating it like a misbehaving dog to keep <laughs> it to just kind of do what you want it to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's uh, and it's a challenge to get it to do that. You know, so I mean, um, you know, like I said, I I love funny cars. I do, but uh, you know, when you look at numbers, the king of speed is the place for us anyway yeah and it's it, it's really amazing when you sit there like in person because nhra drag racing is best consumed in person i like watching it on nhra.tv because you you know the coverage is awesome but nothing beats being there and you get to see the speed differences between the vehicles and like trying to shoot pictures of a top fuel car is it's hard it's <laughs> a knack it's a knack it's like you have to honestly really get used and adjust to the speed from the outside. What's it like inside the car trying to adjust to something that moves like that? Uh, you know, you just got to, it's crazy because as a driver, I swear that when I'm in that car, I can see the fans. I feel like I'm going 55 miles an hour and I can wave to everybody. But on the other side, your mind saying, hey, stupid, you know, you're going 300 feet you know, a second here. And, and so it's like, you know, lots happening really quick. And so it's just amazing how your brain makes the transition um, in, in uh, you know, in the driving habits. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it feels like everything happens at 55 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour. Um, but, you know, automatically your body goes into a mode and it just starts doing what it needs to do. And, and um, you know, it's like you get to the end of the track sometimes. It's like, man, this car moved all over here. And I, I did this, this, and that, and I did this. And then, you know, man, you know, what did I, did I do this or did I do that? And it's like, you start checking things just because it becomes a habit. And, uh, and you know, that is um, a nice thing, a nice safety feature. But ultimately, um, you know, there's, um, there's just a lot to be said for going out there and having the opportunity to do that. And, and, uh, you know, making things happen. But, you know, it's, uh, there's nothing like it, man. There's just nothing like it. Can you recall a time when you were in a fuel car, maybe it's one of the first times you're racing it, where things started to get out of hand and you had that moment where you're like, oh, this this is not going according to plan. You know, what, uh, what, what what's that like? You know, I, I don't know that I ever had that. I'll give you, I, I, I got my license in Rockingham um, in, uh, Evan Knoll's car. And, um, and they told me that if I made this pass, it was a Friday night. If I made the pass, they'd give me my license, allow me to compete for the rest of the weekend in a fuel car. So, um, I get in the car, I think I went 477, 321, my first pass. So the next day, uh, qualifying, um, 
you know, we're in the show pretty good actually. And then the next day, um, we go out there and, and, and uh, first round qualifying, I don't know who I was, but I, I ran and made another good pass. And the third one, I went down the track and I got down there and, and made a move and I, I lifted. And all of a sudden, I think it was Don Magana was in the other lane and came flying by me, just scared the heck out of me. It's like, what just happened? Because I thought I was getting hit with all that noise. I've never been on the other side of a car, you know, having a top fuel car going wide open past you uh, when you're at that stop. And it was just uh, an amazing deal. But, um, you know, my, my only really only mishap, I guess, if you will, um, was in Houston a few years ago when, um, you know, we, uh, we got to the finish line and then, um, uh, the motor came apart and then, um, cut a tire down and, you know, Tony was on the side of me and I was trying to make sure that I didn't get in his way. Uh, plus I also knew I didn't want to go flipping down the, the track. So, you know, we kind of headed towards the wall, um, and that was the only real issue that I ever really had where, um, you know, it's like, uh, this is, this is a reality check, but, but, uh, ultimately, you know, I, I walked away from that thing. The only thing I did was broke my, the front of my finger. And I'm not even sure how I did that, but, you know, I got out of the car, like I should be hurt and all that, but I, I felt fine. And, and I was never sore, never had a bruise or anything like that. But, um, that was probably, you know, the, the biggest pucker up moment, I guess, if you will, that, um, you know, this thing's going to, we're going to hit the wall because we're trying to head that way to get this thing against guardrail. So we don't get in anybody else's way. And, and, uh, you know, um, that was it. So other than that, knock on wood, I haven't had any of those situations. Yes, a lot of big fires and explosions, but nothing like, you know, where it's uh, catastrophic like that. Yeah. I was going to say, you're, you're not a human highlight reel, like, you know, John force of destroying tons and tons and tons <laughs> of equipment. I'd have been out of business about the first one. <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge John Force fan, but man, that guy, it's not good when you're a repeat customer with Steve Evans on the, and they walked away videos. That's not oh, where I you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we had a few of our explosions that were pretty big and nasty, but um, you know, none of them, nothing really bad other than just expensive and, and uh, you know, great highlight wheels, but nothing like, nothing like a John Force or, or some of those guys that have had some really wild rides, you know, and, uh, you know, John's a great guy, man. I love him to death and you know, what a guy he is for our sport. So um, it's good to see him still out there, um, you know, running that car up and down the track. What's it like when a 10,000 horsepower motor decides to do a uh, accelerated deconstruction that's unplanned behind you? What What's that like? Yeah. It, you know, it's really strange because it's, it's, um, the, the car is accelerating at an incredible rate. And, and then all of a sudden you're just slammed onto the dashboard. I mean, your head literally when I'm in that car and lead the starting line, I can't get my hand between my seatbelt and my jacket. But when that thing decides to unload and come apart, um, you literally want to lunge forward, hit your head on the dashboard, if you will. Um, you know, and then you're, then you already know that some stuff's going on and you're trying to do everything you can to keep it safe and stop it. But, but, um, you know, I've had them where it's, it's lifted hard enough, lifted the back end right off the ground on an explosion. Um, it starts bouncing around all over the place and things like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it leaves you with a headache. And uh, other than that, you know, um, nothing really. I mean, I've had a few burns and stuff like that, but nothing on the fire suit, nothing, nothing on the you know, skin or anything like that. It's just, um, you know, at 300 miles an hour, you would think the fire would stay behind you. But it's wrong because in the cockpit is negative air. Oh, yeah. So what happens is all that fire and all that stuff wants to find its way inside the car with you. 
And that's why, you know, DSR came up with the, uh, with the canopy, you know, to try to stop some of that. And, and ultimately, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, it's just a fact of life that it's negative air in that cockpit area. And at 330 miles an hour, fire will go forward. And, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, that's incredible in itself, but, uh, yeah, explosions are, um, are just, you know, the minute they happen, you just know, you're just hoping that the risk is, uh, minimal to the parts so that you can come back and race the, you know, next weekend or the next race. So it's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, there was times we were probably, we were hurting stuff before I even had the invoice to pay for it, you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, leave there that week. And now, not only do I got to pay for one blower, I also got to buy another one. So now I owe for two blowers in the next 30 days. And so, um, you know, those are the, those are the things that, you know, I think as a, as a single team and a, an owner that just doesn't truly have all the big budget money. Um, we, you know, those are the things that, you know, the hurdles that you come across and say like, man, now what am I going to do? In fact, you know, back in Charlotte, you know, I just, I had one bad one and it's like, that was it. I'm done. I can't afford this anymore. I just blown up two motors that weekend and, and I couldn't, I didn't have the money to pay for the parts I just bought and let alone two more motors. And so, um, you know, I was walking away that day and, 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 um, it was the fans that just, you know, came back to me at the pits and, and, uh, you know, we sat and they talked and just, you know, made me come back because it was just the, the passion and their, their passion for what we do. And, 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 uh, you know, they're just NHRA fans are incredible. And, and I just don't think that uh, people really ever understand that. Um, how motivating they are to us as well as, uh, you know, we are to them. And I met a many, many great people, you know, in my career in HRA uh, as we travel around, you know, and racing. So it's, it's just been a, it's been a blessing because they kept me into the sport, kept me going when it was, when I was down. Um, and, you know, when I was up, they were there also to celebrate with us. So it was pretty cool. This is something I've always kind of wondered because in bracket racing, we all have our own routine we go through, you know, we're checking gauges, what we do. And sometimes, you know, things will happen that will pull you out of your routine and you got to kind of figure out how to, to overcome that. Driving a nitro car is 110 million times more <laughs> intensive than a, any bracket car. How do you deal with as a driver when those things happen because, you know, they're going to happen. You know, a car might not start right. There might be an issue. I mean, there's a million and one things that can go wrong. What do you do as a driver to kind of make sure that that doesn't affect you? You know, I mean, there's times that things are going to happen. Sometimes, you know, they hold you up, pulling you into the light because there's an issue they're trying to deal with. The downside is you don't know what that issue is. And and, uh, and I we never wore a radio, so we don't really need to communicate that. It's like when it comes time to stage in the car and all that, it's my job. And I don't really need anybody, you know, in my head. And, and so we just basically did it that way. But what has to happen is that, you know, even though it was a delay or whatever the hiccup was, you know, you just have to go in there and you have to take a deep breath, turn that top light on, take a deep breath, double check yourself and then throw all your fuel on and then put that car in the lights and just wait on it. And, and uh, but there, there's a time where you just got to take that deep breath, clear your head for a moment and then go back to your normal routine. once you get that top light bulb on. Yeah, I kind of figured at that level it's just got to be something where you're more concentrated on what's going on in front of you you can't worry what's going on from about here back because you can't control it there's no switches you can flip inside that car or anything <laughs> there's no miracle cure for that you know and and that's the, that's the the crazy part of it so you know as a as a driver you know you're sitting in there and you know that you're kind of like taking a little bit longer to get to the line than normal 
Um, and then, you know, so then you, you got to be careful that you're not getting in there and rushing yourself and you're, you know, trying to stay into your same routine. So like I, for us, it was me, you know, we just basically, we got the top light on, took a deep breath, you know, turned the fuel system on, checked everything and then bumped it in there. And at that point in time, you're refocused on what your job is and you go out there and do it. And I, I've crewed on teams before where things have gone awry with the radio tire car. And I could literally like, it was stuff either going on in the other lane or something like track related. I could see physically see our driver getting agitated and I would have to pop, you know, pop in front of the windshield and be like, all right, just calm, calm down, deep breath. We're, we're, we're good. You know, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just don't, don't worry. The, the car's still running. We're not on fire yet. Let's just let that happen. You know, just, because as a driver, you're so amped up that, that, that something like that will pull you out of routine and it can mess with you. But really well, you know, it's funny because, you know, we had the big screen TV and NHRA and it's like, I forget what race was, but anyway, one race we were at there and, and I, I accused my crew, you know, that, you know, there was a dilemma going on and we finally, we got the car staged and I kind of glanced at the big screen TV for whatever reason. I see my crew running backwards, like, although this thing's going to blow up or something, you know, and then we staged the car, hit the gas, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's always been a standing joke, you know, because we don't know what's going on. And, and I don't want to know what's going on basically, because it just, that would get into your routine. You know, you just have to go back and, and refocus and go back and doing what you do and, and just, you know, remember all the steps that you do. Once you hit the gas, uh, everything is, you know, back on track. So it, it's just, to me, it's like, once that switch starts, we turn that motor on, we start it, it turns the switch on in my head at that point in time. And then it's just, you know, basically a routine try to be a machine um and do the same thing every time i've been on the starting line where i have shooting pictures you know doing coverage and i see bad things happening like in the driver you can tell the driver's asking the guy on the radio you know what's going on and the crew guy ah, everything's fine everything's <laughs> yeah. fine meanwhile the crew is in like full thrash mode <laughs> trying to fix it ah, don't worry about it just oh, hold on one second let, let us get this figured out yeah yeah no i get it I mean, I think we've all seen it, and uh, you know, but uh, you know that, and that's that's you know, good crew chiefs. You know, they're they're not going to put anybody in harm's way, and uh, you know, um, you know, that's one thing with Rob is that you know, we always went to the starting line. We never had to shut our car off. We never had any of those issues like that where we where we had to worry about that. And the and the team did a great job preparing it. And um, so you know, for the most part, nine times out of ten, um, there was no dilemmas. There was sometimes a little bit of a delay, one area or another, but but nothing major, you know, where you, you would have concern. And, and um, uh, you know, I think my biggest concern ever was like, I forget even who we were racing, but it took them a very long time to stage the car. And now I'm thinking to myself, man, we're running out of fuel because I mean, these things drink it, you know, faster than you can pour it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, we're running out of fuel right now. And this thing's going to be really light. And, uh, you know, is it A, going to carry the front end or B, am I going to get down there and all of a sudden to grenade a motor because I'm, I'm out of fuel and, and, uh, Fortunately enough that, you know, we went down the track and, and as we got to the finish line, just lifted a little bit early, but it was enough to, to you know, to get us through. So, um, but those, those are the things that when those things happen, that start you thinking in a whole nother time when you're sitting there looking at your clock and saying, Hey, you know, we're 15 seconds longer than what we should have been or 20 seconds longer. You know, we just burned another gallon and a half of fuel, you know? So um, where are we at? Because we try to run these cars. So you have enough fuel in the tank at the end to get, you know, get through fuel check. Um, but obviously you don't want to leave too much in there because it's white and, and you know, you want to get rid of that. So, um, so there's a real fine line, you know, when, 
you know, teams run the car. You'll see some teams like, you know, let's just say we're a minute 45 car. You'll see some teams that are two minute car. So we'll wait 15 seconds before we start our car so that we get to the starting line at the same time and we're all ready and nobody's hung out to dry. Um, because again, that's based on what you do with the fuel in the front of the car and, and things like that. So we're getting ready to kick off the last portion of the show. Before I do that, I've got to thank this episode sponsors, Airflow Research, the original CNC ported cylinder head company. From the street enthusiast to the hardcore racer, AFR has designed a cylinder head for your application with one mind, one goal in mind, just go fast. Now, with that being said, you know, we, we talked about this before, and it was something I wanted to kind of get out there because you guys are still actively looking for a sponsor because unfortunately COVID did hit Amley hard enough. They had to back out. Did it even ever enter your mind that you were just going to stop trying to race period when, like when that happened? No, I mean, it hasn't. And, and, you know, we're working diligently, uh, uh, you know, not only, uh, you know, the, the people that work with us, um, but, you know, the fans, everybody's working extremely hard, you know, giving us leads and, and we're following up on leads and, and sending packages out and all that. Um, failure wasn't an option. It's still not an option. We're still fighting to the very end. Um, it's just getting, you know, dicey because, you know, I mean, I have truck and trailer payments due every month that I have nothing coming in to cover that. So it's getting to the point now where, you know, we got to start doing some different things here to make that work out. But, but um, the biggest, you know, the biggest thing is COVID hit Amway to suspended our contract, you know, and, uh, and there's like three years left on our contract. So, you know, we felt we were in pretty good shape going into it prior to COVID, but then when COVID hit, um, you know, oil, the 400 billion people did drive their cars last year. That meant, you know, working from home. So no oil was being sold. And then you look at it and they, you know, the aviation industry is down. So some of the byproducts used from making fuel, uh, you know, aren't readily available. And then, you know, now the oil companies are getting rations put on them of what they can produce a year or a month. Um, and so when you start looking at all those different signs that are adding up, it's really difficult for an oil company right now to be in there making money um, because of the restrictions that they've been hit with. And, you know, certainly price increases. I mean, I think uh, across the board in the last, you know, probably four months, I think every month there's been a huge price increase because base stocks changing and, uh, you know, the ad packs are changing and all these different things. So the combination of price increases and everything else that's going on is, has definitely hit the oil industry hard. And, you know, in my opinion is that, you know, um, while it wasn't great for Terry McMillan, um, and Amley, uh, you know, I, I certainly acknowledge why they did what they did and, and, and commend them for that because, you know, people, uh, you can't be laying off people and having a race car going up and down the racetrack, you know, so um, they, they did what they had to do. We mutually agreed to what they were going to do. And, um, and, you know, hopefully that down the road, that'll all, that all changes as the COVID goes away and things start getting back to normal. But, um, but for sponsorship chase, it's been, um, always know it's a challenge. Uh, but I think that, you know, the biggest challenge that we're running into today is that when you run into companies today, they may even have the money to go to sponsor the car. They're leery of spending any money this year until they see what 2021 is going to bring them because of the fact of the impact of all the other stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, face it, you can't even get parts for anything anymore, I, whether it be furniture or whether it be race car parts, everything's back ordered. Everything's, you know, really, the whole system of everything is just strange. So, um, 
So it's a little more difficult to find marketing partners um, at this moment. But um, I believe that there's, we have some opportunities for next year, for sure. I just got to figure out how to get my truck and trailer payments covered and, and, and keeping Rob Wendland payment covered uh, to make that happen. And uh, so that's a challenge that we have right at the moment. But, um, you know, I definitely plan on, on, on coming back and, and going out there and, and uh, you know, putting our package back together and, and going out there and racing because I really believe we have a package and a team to be reckoned with once we have that opportunity again. Now, it's interesting. I, I had a other question I was going to ask you, but I, I, I want to go in a different direction with this. Being a smaller team, you know, do you guys, do you feel like you have a – a better ability to bring a non-traditional or a different sponsor to the sport because you guys have the ability to think outside the box. You don't have a massive conglomerate of things to run. Do you, do you think that's something where you could kind of go to a boutique company and be like, we can bring you into a market and give you a unique opportunity experience to touch a lot of fans? Oh, absolutely. You know, give you an example. We went to jewelry stores you know, that are, they're flourishing, they're still doing well. And, and we went to a lot of outside venues, outside the traditional racing, um, just because we looked at the companies that were, you know, fairly strong during the COVID and, and said, okay, well, these folks probably have some money back that they can afford to spend. And, and, and we can enhance what they're doing with our marketing program, because it's, you know, marketing is, is, is it's a network, you know, it's, it's creating that pipeline, that conduit, if you will, and opening up different avenues through the marketing partners and uh, strategic opportunities that you have within the industry or whatever that may be, whether it be in the trucking industry or the jewelry industry or the RV industry, whatever it is, um, you know, there's conduits that you have that you can, um, you gotta, you can work with and, and try to make things happen. And so that's kind of where we're at right now is just trying to utilize every opportunity we have and trying to put back, uh, looking at our conduit and saying, okay, well, you know, we can help your company with this. We can help you with, let's just say credit cards, or we can help you um, with, with um, new, unique stuff for your RV or new, unique stuff for your, um, your motor home or your, your, your house or whatever it is. So there's, there's different avenues that, you know, we look at each marketing partner and say, okay, we try to do a background search on them, learn as much as we can on what they do, how they do it. And then, what new products that they come out with and how can we help promote that new product into a, into a Lowe's, if you will, or into a Home Depot or whatever it is, some, some place that traditionally they can't get to. And what you do is you do a lot of trading off, you know, like you go into Lowe's and say, Hey, look, man, I need five foot of shelf space and I'm going to put Amley motor oil in this shelf space. Okay. I'm going to put you on the race car and Amley's going to be on the race car. And, and so, you know, Lowe's is sitting back saying, well, that's a good deal for me. And, you know, Amley's sitting back saying, well, man, I got that. And, you know, 2000 stores. So it's a home run. So it's those type of um, uh, combinations that you have to put together to, to make balance out so that it's a win-win because I believe that if someone gives me a nickel, it's my job to give them 10 cents back um, because they're, they're not going to stay with you very long if you're not um, giving them a return on their investment. And that's where, you know, we've been really fortunate with Amway. I mean, we've been with them 19 years, you know, we've given them a positive growth. Uh, we've created a lot of different opportunities and, uh, and, you know, they've given us the tools we needed to go out and race. So it's a, it was a win-win deal. And, and I certainly hope that we have the opportunity to get back to that at some level, you know, going forward. But right now, short term, we got we to gotta figure out how to keep things alive. 
Uh, we, we talked about this on the pre-call, and it's something you wanted to hit on, and it's something I found interesting. And you hit on, you know, you talked about it too, how important the fans are to you, and how they keep you going. The fans, man, you're a fan favorite to say the least. Talk about how they are like, you know, it, it's literally crowdfunding. How are they trying to help you out? You know, it's it's been amazing because uh, the fans. Once, you know, this whole deal happened with Amelie and things were suspended and we were all kind of figuring out what we're going to do. The, the fans started sending emails, you know, friends that work at the racetrack. It just all these different people were were trying to help support us by here. You know, call this guy. I talked to him. Here's, here's an opportunity for you know a sponsorship and and things like that. And so um, we've been inundated with emails and text messages from fans. Uh, both in the United States and overseas, trying to open doors for us to find a marketing partner that would pick us up right now and keep us going. And I, and and that's one thing that you'll never find in any other form of motorsports is that the loyalty of the NHRA drag racing fan, you know, and, and Camping World, I, I believe, is going to see the benefit in that as well. When Marcus signed up with this deal, um, he's already doing some amazing things with it. But that race fan is so loyal. Um, and, and when they want Amelie product, they're going to go out of their way to find Amelie product to buy it and put it in their car because they sponsor Terry McMillan. And so um, that whole, that whole um, uh, setup has is, is just been overwhelming to me. Uh, you know, Corey and I have just been hammering these things out. And like I said, I, I bet on any given day, we get 10 to 20 new leads from fans just um reaching out saying hey man i, I see you're still working at it you know try this guy you know i, I reached out i talked to him tell him to call in and then you know see what we can do from there so um today terry mcmillan racing wouldn't be there for all the if it was for the fans um the support of, of other racers and certainly um you know just the 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 inner core working of my wife and, and, and Elon Warner and, and Beverly, everybody that has helped us try to secure that, that additional funding right now. And it's not over. We're still working at it. We're still fighting. Um, and, uh, you know, like I've always said, persistence outweighs resistance. And if we can maintain that, you know, attitude and find a way through this, then we're going to be back in this car sooner than what you think. Now, you, you touched on something there as well, that the CEO of Camping World, you know, that they they jumped into this. And when I saw them coming in, I'm like, people, like, there, there were some, some negative Nancy's about it. I'm like, y'all don't understand this guy. When he jumps into something, he gets elbow deep in his investment. And he proved that by trying – he put it out there, who needs help coming to the first race in Gainesville? And, you know, you, you're part of that equation too, but I want to get your take first on just seeing that from the title sponsor, the Camping World NHRA series said, I want to get racers to the track. What does that say to you as a Nitro racer? Class act, class act. I mean, he gets it. He understands. He understands that he has to make an investment into the sport, but he also understands the activation side of the sport, you know, and that is what he is. You know, if you look at this, this guy, Marcus has just done an amazing job on how he transitions, whether it be in a truck series or an NHRA, how you transition and makes things happen, you know, and, and, um, you know, he's offered up, you know, here's money, put it on your car, uh, you know, go to, go to, you know, truck race or best drawing or whatever it may be. 
um, he's always thinking this. And that's what's really intriguing with him is that um, I love his approach that he just never lets anything rest. Nothing is good enough. He keeps digging for more. He keeps reaching out there and he pushes the envelope, not just with himself, but with everybody in his and his business. And so um, that's why I think this is going to be such a fit for NHRA. And, and uh, you know, I, I just honestly believe that um, he's already made some pretty big statements. I guess in Gainesville, they raced two motorhomes on the track, right? Yeah. And he gave them away. He was only going to give one away, but he ended up giving both of them away. That is a class act. Not because um, that he gave two motorhomes away, but he's just putting his money and his, and his product, you know, where his mouth's at. And, and that, to me, is a guy that just understands marketing 101. And, and, um, and I, I, right now, I don't think there's anybody better than him out there doing it. So, um, you know, kudos to him and his organization. And, you know, and at the same point in time, I want to say thank you for coming in and, and uh, step up for NHRA because we certainly needed somebody like this. Yeah, like I, I was going to mention that, that the whole giveaway RV thing, I heard that. I'm like, all right, this, <laughs> this, this guy 110% under, like he looked at the NHRA and probably said, this is the ultimate dog and pony show. We got loud cars. We got rabid fans. We have a target rich environment for my product. It just, there. I think you're going to see them gathering. They'll, they'll do a certain amount this year, but I think it's going to be a data gathering year. They are going to break down their investment to really see what they can do. And I think year two is when you're going to see if things go well, turned up even more. Well, 100%. I mean, you look at it, there's what, 600, 700 motorhomes that show up to a race on a national event weekend anymore. And they're not the same motorhomes all the time. You and know? that's just in the pits. That's right. Fans bring it. <laughs> exactly. And so you start looking at this thing and it's like, man, this is this guy's backyard. It's his market. It certainly makes sense. You know, people are going to upgrade to motorhomes. He's going to promote you and give you the opportunity to upgrade to motorhomes. And he's going to do a lot of things that, that, you know, uh, a lot of uh, primary uh, event sponsors wouldn't do. Uh, but he has the tools and the means to make that happen. And, and by doing so, like you said, every, every good marketing program starts out a little sluggish the first year, but the second year it starts kicking butt. And I think once he gets to his second year, he's never going to look back and he's going to keep moving on. Now, I, I know that you, with, with the money on the cars, your fans probably sent you a million to one posts about that. And <laughs> I, I saw where you, the, the reason why you said you didn't want to do it is because you just, you can't throw a team together that quick. Talk about that for a second, because, you know, that, yes, that's a dream scenario, but like we were saying, you can't go to your four bowling buddies and say, Hey, let's go run a nitro car this weekend. Well, you can do that. You can do that, but has really some adverse effects. You know, yeah. I think that I think in, in our case, what we looked at is that um, uh, while it was a, a, a tremendous offer and a tremendous opportunity for everybody, um, and certainly we would have loved to have been part of that, um, you you can't go out there and just put a, a team together, a part-time team, when nobody knows the system, the setup, and all of those things, because everybody has to be on the same page all the way through. And if one area is down just one little bit, the, the car is going to suffer. And, and I think for me, the, the real, real part of this that really hit home with me is one is that if we did put a team together and let's just say we didn't live up to the standards that we, we put as our benchmark and we go out there and we hurt the car and, and then we do a very poor showing from for him. Okay. 
he might stop doing that for and never do it again in any trade. That's not good business. More importantly, um, so I, I wanted to make sure that if we're going to do this, we can represent him properly, Marcus. And then at the same point in time, I want to um, make sure that if we did do this and we were successful, that I don't, I don't want to underdeliver uh, to any marketing partner out there. My goal is that we're going to go out there. We're going to run three qualifiers. We're going to run three qualifiers. We're going to do everything we can to make this show a great show. If we go out there and we fail to do that, it is only going to hurt my opportunities down the road to securing another major marketing partner. So there was a lot more at risk than just, you know, uh, tarnishing, you know, the camping world's name because we weren't prepared properly. It also has a long-term effect of what it's going to do on Terry McMillan racing. So when you start putting that together and saying, look, we're in this thing long-term. Okay. And this short-term thing, while it seems so tempting, it doesn't make business sense because it could hurt both entities and, and really create a bigger problem than, than what we know it to be. Terry, one last question, you know, your gut feeling right now with things are going, you know, do you, do you think you're going to make it into a, into a car at some point this year? Well, yeah. Um, persistence is going to outweigh resistance and we're doing everything we can to do that. Uh, my goal is to get back in the car this year. Um, the car is ready to go for the most part. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the funding that we can have the proper team again and then uh, go out there and race the thing. I won't do it just to go out there and race it because while I would love it, um, it's going to hurt all the good parts I have. Then I'm starting from ground, ground zero again, back in the hole with, you know, weak parts and things like that. I want to do it the right way. I want to do it the proper way. I want to do it the way that we've done things in the past. And that is delivering the best package to our partners that we can. And if we can do that, I will be back in a car this year. And if not, um, you know, hopefully there's next year, but right now we're doing everything we can still working on, on, you know, marketing partners on a daily basis. And, uh, hopefully we can find someone, even if it's for a couple, three races that, um, you know, helps build the momentum going forward. So if we get three more races, that's three more truck payments that I don't have to worry about and three more, and then we can work on three more and three more, and then hopefully get a bunch of the year in. So, um, Persistence outweighs resistance. That's our motto. We're not quitting there. And I have no intention of uh, not getting back in that car this year. Well, Terry, I can tell you right now, your competitors are probably going, man, the last thing we want to deal with is a back half of the <laughs> season of this cat coming out and ruining everybody's dance party, because that's exactly what you're capable of doing is being that wild card where someone's making a title run. And it's like, oh, Lord, I got to race Terry this round. And he's loaded to go. Yeah, there used to be a day that everybody wanted Terry McMillan first round. Not so much anymore, you know. That's going to be a good feeling. That is an amazing feeling because it's like, you know, uh, you know, you just like, it doesn't matter if it's Steve Torrance or Tony Schumacher or Antron. It doesn't matter. We have a car that can compete with any of them. You know, back in the day, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm thinking to myself, geez, we're running Antron Brown. And, you know, man, I'm going to have to get on the line on this guy because his car is always going to be consistently fast. And so we got to do things that we normally don't necessarily want to do but you know you got to do whatever it takes to win the race and so um today it's different than that today you know they have to say oh now we got terry this round this maybe not going to be that pushover anymore well terry thank you so much for coming on the show and at this point i like to give my guests their their ability to impersonate the old school john force and you can i'll turn it over to you and you can thank who you want to thank and tell people where they can learn more about your cause and everything else so the floor is yours, my friend. 
use the time to, to tell, talk about what you got to talk about. Hey man, just come visit us at terrymcmillan.com. You know, that's our website. Uh, you can certainly text me. My phone number's on the, on the, uh, on the website as well. As far as John Force, man, I, how can you do, how can, there's only one John Force, you know, but, uh, you know, man, I got out there about, got a thousand foot, man. And I seen, I seen Elvis. Elvis was talking to me, dude. I'm telling you, Elvis was all over the place. I couldn't believe it. I'm upside down, spinning in circles. But man, hey, Memphis, Tennessee, Elvis, baby, we're okay. That's the best I got. You know what? There's only been one other person that has taken me up on the offer to do that. That was Alexis DeGiorno. And like, that, now you are at the, like, if this was like, you know, uh, well, what was that show? Uh, not the Grand Tour, the other one. Uh, that they, where they had the board where the people raced. It's escaping my mind with the British guys. You're, oh, you're yeah, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, uh, uh, people are going to hate me for that. I can't remember. I cannot remember the name of the show. Top Gear. Top Gear. Yep. You are now at the, the you are now the leaderboard on Top Gear. That that done done over with. That's <laughs> I, I anoint you the champion now. But <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for allowing us to be on here. And and like I said. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, can't thank everybody enough. You guys for, you know, jumping on here and just, you know, helping us get the word out that, you know, we're, uh, we're looking for marketing partners. We're working hard at it. And, uh, you know, I just want to, I just want to find a partner that it's going to be a win-win that everybody wins. And, uh, you know, and then we can build from there. Awesome, Terry. And, you know, of course, I've got to thank our sponsors that made this possible. This episode for AFR Performance Distributors and ProCharger came on board to help us out. But again, Terry, thank you so much. I hopefully... Hopefully I'll see you at Norwalk and we can talk about this fun time in person at Norwalk. Sounds like a great opportunity, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care, man. You too.